0: just to do a sound check. I don't like microphones, never have. Good morning, Shabbat Shalom. I'm going to go off script a little bit before I go over what I prepared here. We had company last night, um, just celebrating Shabbat with some old friends, and my friend had asked me What do you believe? And so I laid in bed till about 3 o'clock. Just could not go to sleep. Just memories, just things coming through my mind. All the way back to my first church experience. And I always feel, whenever I've done any kind of public speaking, which is weird, I've been in sales my whole life. I don't mind talking pretty much about anything, but put a microphone around me, I'll pass it right back. I've done it before, literally. Um, anytime I have to speak in front of people publicly or like this, I get tight in the chest. Right now I feel it. I mean, I, and so I just, I laid there and I kept thinking it's that stupid vitamin. Usually I take my vitamin in the morning. I took my multivitamin last night at like 7.30. So I kept thinking, man, it's just this vitamin that's keeping me awake. And this morning I told Amy that. But I don't think it was a vitamin. <laughs> and so on the way up here, you know, I'm just listening to what I like to listen to in, in the truck, just cruising along. And some of these memories started coming back. And uh, I was just a straight heathen as, as a kid and, and as a young man and as an old man, too, at times. <laughs> But uh, going back to my childhood, and I admire these, these kids that come up here like Evelyn. It takes a lot of guts. It take, to me, it takes guts still to me. I don't like public speaking. But to be a kid and come up here and to do that and recite it in front of people, and when Miguel or any of these kids recite the blessings, man, it's special. It's a cool thing. And... For me as a kid, you know, my, my best cousin uh, and I, our, parent, our moms got divorced about the same time. And we were pretty poor at the time in our house. And, you know, mom was just devastated like anybody would be. They said, we're going to go to church. And so we went to First Baptist in uh, downtown Battle Creek. Didn't know anything about God. Wasn't raised around it. Didn't, didn't even really know what we were doing there. It was just a place to go. I didn't know what we were doing. I don't even remember what I thought. A long time ago, I was probably six years old maybe. What I do remember is clowning off all the time in Sunday school. We were so bad that uh, during craft time, my cousin Brian and I used the Elmer's glue and glued pages of the Bible together in Sunday school. So... I mean, we got we got called on the carpet for that. We got called on the carpet for sticking our hand in the Coke bottle machine and shaking it and stealing pop bottles, uh, and you know I don't know if we went there a few months or what it was. It was a pretty short season of life, but um, <clears throat> I'm just gonna I'm putting myself on blast. So uh, we had. I don't know what you call it, a recital for something coming up, like some type of choir type thing. And every kid had their part. And my cousin and I got to do ours together. He had the little triangle thing that you ding, 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 ding. And then when he did that, I was supposed to sing, 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 whatever I was supposed to sing. I don't remember. But I said the whole way, I'm not doing it. I'm not singing. Can't make me do it. Well, you're going to be up there in front of the whole church. You're going to sing. And it came to time, cousin goes, ding, 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 ding. And I didn't say anything. So we wound up shortly after that uh, in the, I don't know if we call him a reverend or a pastor, but we wound up in his office with the Sunday school teacher, our moms, the pastor, the reverend. And I don't remember much after that, except we didn't go back. We never, we never went back. <laughs> and then, so I guess the next thing, I'm just, I'm just, I'm gonna confess something that I don't even think Amy knows. I don't know if I've ever shared this with anybody, but I'm gonna put it out there. So, Northwestern Junior High, seventh grade. You pick some of, you get to pick a couple electives. My class clown friends and I picked choir because it's easy. You just show up, you know. And uh, but, circled back to the same thing. Gonna have a solo. And uh, I think it was Mrs. Minner was that the, okay, yeah, Mrs. Minner. We were the worst class ever. I don't know how she, I mean, I remember her threatening to quit, like, leaving the class. We were a terrible classroom of students. I don't even remember any girls in there. It was definitely a lot of the, like, the rowdy boys. And so, of all things, it was fiddling around the roof was what our, Concert was about, it was 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. We're the little 7th graders. And I don't remember what my part was, but we're up on stage. The whole auditorium at Northwestern Junior High is filled. And uh, we're the 7th graders of the first act. I got my solo part. And same thing, I'm not doing it. I'm not, uh, not going to sing, Mrs. Minter. Can't make me do it. It comes to my part. Everybody is kind of like, I dare you not to, I dare you not to, all the way to the concert. So here I am, seventh grade, 100 pounds. It comes to my part. All my buddies look at me, and I stand there, and I literally wet my pants. (laughs) Literally. I'm standing there. Nobody knew it. To this day, this might be the first time anybody knew it. Have I ever shared that with you? Okay, Amy knows. I don't remember sharing that with anybody else ever. And... Yeah, because she wouldn't have married me if she knew that. (laughs) Yeah, I I froze up. I wet my pants, black slacks on, luckily. But I felt like I was getting zapped with electricity. I felt like everybody knew. I started to get red in the face. My ears caught on fire. I started to, like, whelp up like I was going to cry. And then I realized I'm going to cry in front of everybody. And uh, I didn't cry, but I was like 98% there trying to figure out if everybody knew that. Like, I wet my pants. I'd never done it. I didn't even know if you could tell. I, now my chest doesn't feel tight sharing that. So we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, right? So ever since that day, I, one time I was involved in a youth group. They gave me a microphone. I was like, here you go, John. I don't want that. Uh, so anyways, let's go before Abba. Ugh. Avinu Malkanu, our Father, our King, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your involvement in the world. I thank you for your spirit, Lord. I, I pray that it be your will today that this message is received and that we are edified from it and that we draw near to each other and, most importantly, that we draw near to you. Misham Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. So, Vicra, the first parasha in the book of Vicra, also known as Leviticus. I'm sure you all know this portion of the Bible is all about the sacrifices. The sacrifices that stopped taking place over 2,000 year, years ago when Rome destroyed the temple. Just being totally honest with you, Mike, when you asked if I would teach once in a while, I, I felt inside honored uh, and excited and at the same time pretty nervous. Now I really understand why. You understand why after sharing that story. That's why I got up during worship and went pee. (laughs) Can't have a repeat. (laughs) So, uh, but then he said, by Ikra. Man, is that my phone? Okay, all right, thank God. Uh, So we all have our strong suits, theological perspectives that we feel confident conversing about. You know, when the only other time i put together any sort of teaching and publicly given it was for Sarah's bat mitzvah, which was pretty much Torah 101, uh, Messianic Judaism 101, and more or less everybody here's got all the 101 and moved on past all that. But we had guests and family and friends. So that was pretty, pretty easy. Vayikra is definitely not uh, my strong suit. Um... Definitely not one that I would feel confident conversing publicly about. <clears throat> so, I mean, this, this crowd here is, is—it's for most people here, I think they could walk into most evangelical Western churches and probably do a pretty good job just walking right in and, and preaching. That's the people that are drawn to Messianic Judaism. We like to study. We like to go deeper. We want to know. We want to know the answers to a lot of things. So Vayikra, um is just a part of the Bible, I think, that a lot of people just gloss over. Um, obviously, I've read it several times in my life, but I would have never felt good about coming up and presenting a teaching on it. So... Um, I've kind of gone off script and now I'm trying to reconcile and get back to what I actually had here <clears throat> so Vayikra is all about drawing near and that's, that's what we're going to get into so the word offering translates the Hebrew word korban as sacrifice neither of these words offering or sacrifice accurately, accurately express the concept Sacrifice implies that someone must deprive themselves of something important to them, while the word offering implies a payment, a fee, a tribute, or a gratuity. But does God get satisfaction in inflicting deprivation upon his children? He really doesn't need anything from us, does he? If he does need or want something from us, what would that be? Could that be what this parasha is all about? So let's take a look. The word korban implies more than just a sacrifice or an offering. The root word, the root of the word korban is karav, a Hebrew verbal root that can be translated as to come near. The individual who brings a korban does so in order to come closer to God. Sometimes a drawing near served as a remedy for distance between people and God caused by sin or negligence, and other times, it was a simple act of love, devotion, or thanks. When I mentioned to Amy that I was going to teach on Vaikra, I remember saying something like, of all portions, Vaikra." I think Mike's trying to see what I'm made of or something. <laughs> uh, her response was something to the effect of, that's a great parasha. Those weren't her exact words, but she definitely responded in a way that made me curious and also gave me a feeling of conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. For as much as I thought I knew, as as much as I thought I knew, if I were actually tested on Viika, I would probably get a C grade at best. Her reaction also gave me a sense of excitement because Amy was seeing something that I didn't. It usually turns out good for me when this happens, that she sees something I don't see. So I began studying and began to draw near. I'm sure we all have heard the, the that Jesus fulfilled the sacrifices, and maybe this is the reason so many believers tend to gloss over or neglect to learn about the sacrifices altogether. But if Jesus fulfilled them, then shouldn't we do our best to understand what he fulfilled? Is it possible that as his Talmudim, his disciples, we should fulfill them too? Maybe not in the sense of raising livestock and placing it on the altar, at least not in this day and age where there's no literal temple standing in Jerusalem. In the Messianic movement, however, we believe that when Yeshua returns and reigns from Jerusalem, the sacrifices will resume. So if he indeed did fulfill them, and if they're going to resume in the Messianic age, then I guess it's a great disservice to not understand what he fulfilled or why they will continue in the Olam Haba, the world to come, also known as the Messianic era. So for the last month or so, I've been on quite a journey reading and learning about this portion from several different commentaries, such as Unrolling the Scroll, Depths of Torah, Voice of the Prophets, the Humash, Places in the Parashah, Spices of the Torah, which is a book on gematria in each parashah, the Art Scroll, Art Scroll, sidur, Rabbi Teach Us to Pray, What About the Sacrifices, the Mind of God, and of course the scriptures themselves. So before we go much further, it would serve us well to do a quick refresher on the five different types of korban, or drawing near. The first type of offering is a burnt offering, or ola. Olah offering is a voluntary offering. The root of ola, ala, means to go up, or that which rises. The ola was the only offering which was completely consumed on the altar. Nothing was reserved to be eaten by the priest or the worshiper. Ola offering symbolizes complete, total surrender and devotion to God. Romans 12.1 says, I exhort you, therefore brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. Yeshua fulfilled the role of Ola. He lived his life in total abandonment to Adonai. Thy will be done, not thy will, not mine be done. Could it be that we too could offer an Ola in the form of setting ourselves apart, offering ourselves to the service of each other and to God? In fact, if we serve each other, are we not serving God in doing so? Loving our neighbors as ourselves, making sure that we are doing our best to do his will, not our own. The second type of offering is the grain offering or the minha. The minha or grain offering was voluntary. Minha literally means gift or tribute. Minha offering is essentially a free will gift to God. The grain offering was brought by poor people who may not be able to afford the other types of sacrifices. Here's a Talmudic parable to help us better understand minha or minka. It can be compared to a human king for whom his friend wanted to prepare a feast. The king knew his friend was poor and could not afford a variety of foods like those to which the king was accustomed. The man could only afford flour. The king did not want the man to feel bad, so when he accepted the man's dinner invitation, he told his friend, do you know what I would like to eat? I would like to prepare five different kinds of bread. I would like you to prepare five different kinds of breads for me. There's the grain. That's from Babylonian Talmud, Tractate, Menahot 104b. So here's a few more points to to make you go, hmm. A portion of this grain offering was offered as its memorial portion on the altar. They divided and shared the remainder amongst the priesthood. The grain offering alludes to Messiah, the bread of life. Yeshua was born in Bethlehem, or bet which means house of bread. Yeshua declared himself to be the bread that came down from heaven. During his last Seder with the disciples, he took matzah, unloving bread, broke it, and shared it with them, just as the priest divided and shared it among the priesthood. Yeshua, the bread of life, offering himself is akin to the minkah offering. Can we offer ourselves? Going back to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 2, we read. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of the olam Hazza, this world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. For I'm telling every single one of you, through the grace that has been given to me, not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance Instead, develop a sober estimate of yourself based on the standard which God has given to each of you, namely trust. For just as there are many parts that compose one body, but the parts don't all have the same function, so there are many of us, and in union with the Messiah, we comprise one body, with each of us belonging to others. But we have differing gifts, which are meant to be used according to the grace that has been given to us. And then Shaul Paul goes on to list many of the different gifts that we each have to offer in the body of Messiah. So we see that our Messiah, the bread of life, who came from the house of bread, in a sense, has fulfilled minha grain offering. Can we too do minha by humbly offering our talents, gifts, and callings and serving each other, which is actually a service unto God? <clears throat> I believe so, and I believe that's what Yeshua asked of us. That's why we're here. The way I see it, it is by no coincidence that we exist at this exact moment in time and work where we do and have the relationships that we do. We have countless opportunities to do minka every day. The third type of offering, the peace offering, or shalomim. Shalomim is related to, you guessed it, Shalom. Free will, thanksgiving, votive, and Pesach lambs are all shalomim or a peace offerings. These were never bought as a penalty for sin. The person offering and the priest who offered it on the altar partook. It was an opportunity to share in the table of Adonai. Shalimim offerings symbolized mutual goodwill between God and the offerer. Shalimim were usually offered in conjunction with the festivals or the Moedim, the appointed times. The Shalamim or a peace offering, was different from the other korban in that the worshiper retained the majority of the meat and enjoyed it with his family and friends. Any Jew could eat it as long as he or she ate it within the camp and was in a state of ritual purity. Messiah Yeshua fulfills the Shalamim peace offering in that he represents a shared investment between God and man, a portion of the divine and mortal, the spiritual and the physical. His Corban, his sacrifice, brings peace between the two parties. He is a source of peace and wholeness in relationship with God. The Pesach, or Passover lamb, did not atone for sin. The worshiper brought it as a type of peace offering in remembrance of the redemption from Mitzraim or Egypt. Since the Passover lamb was a type of peace offering, Yeshua's sacrifice does correspond to the function of the peace offering. Through him we are at peace with God. Once he has made peace, once again, he's made peace between the physical and the spiritual. Can we, too, fulfill Shalomim offerings by being peacemakers? Let's turn to Yaakov or James 3.13-18. through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him demonstrate by his good way of life, by actions done in the humility that grows out of wisdom, but if you harbor in your hearts bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, don't boast or attack the truth with lies. This wisdom is not the kind that comes down from above. On the contrary, it is a worldly, unspiritual, demonic. For there are jealousy and selfish ambition, I'm sorry, for where there are jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disharmony in every foul practice. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceful, kind, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And peacemakers who sow seed in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Going on to the fourth type of uh, offering, the sin offering or hatat. The root word hatat is an archery term meaning to miss the mark. Remember, Torah comes from the root word yarah, meaning to hit the mark. So sin offering was a means of spiritual purification after sin had been dealt with, repented, and forgiven. It was brought not only for sin, but also in connection with ritual purification. It's best to regard it as a gift to Adonai, like an apology gift. It did not earn forgiveness, but it was a gesture. In other words, the sin offering was not a penalty for sinning. Instead, it was a means of spiritual purification after sin had been confessed, repented of, and forgiven. The sin offering, hatat was a type of gift to Adonai. It did not earn forgiveness, but was an appropriate gesture to make. Sin offerings were also brought in connection with ritual purification. There were many instances that would require bringing hatat, even though no actual sin had been committed. A few examples would be a woman after childbirth, a leper after his cleansing, Nazarite who came into contact with a corpse or who completed the term of his vow. None of these people actually committed a sin. That being said, hatat shouldn't be understood to be just a sin, an offering for sin. A better translation for hatat would be a purification offering. The Hebrew word hatat sometimes indicates an impurica- impurification instead of a sin. A hatat was often mandated for someone who has become ritually unclean. Remember, all sin is ritually unclean, but not all things that are ritually unclean are sin. The sin offering alludes to Messiah. His atoning death and triumphant resurrection provide cleansing from sin in the heavenly sanctuary. Yochanan, John the Immerser, declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin offering was not a penalty for sinning. Yeshua said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called us to repentance, and He has, in a sense, fulfilled the hatat offering when He offered Himself up. Can we too offer a hatat in the form of repentance and acceptance of Yeshua? If one asks Yeshua into their life but does not repent and live differently, have they really accepted Yeshua and His hatat, so to speak? Furthermore, what does faith in Messiah look like? If we can't offer a literal hatat, what could we do? We don't have to look far, as there are many clues in the B'rit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures. Let's have a look and see what our Bibles say. In Yaakov James 1:21 through 27 it says, So rid yourselves of all vulgarity and obvious evil, and receive meekly the word implanted in you that can save your lives. Don't, decide your, don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the word says, but do it. For whoever hears the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, who looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah which gives freedom and continues becoming not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work it requires, then he will be blessed in what he does." Anyone who thinks he is religiously observant but does not control his tongue is deceiving himself, and his observance counts for nothing. The religious observance that God the Father considers pure and faultless is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. To care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. So dropping down to Yaakov or James 2.20-24, through 24, it says, But foolish fellow, do you want to be shown that faith apart from actions is barren? Wasn't Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, declared righteous because of actions when he offered up his son Yitzchak Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith worked with his actions. By the actions, faith was made complete. And the passage of the Tanakh was fulfilled, which says, Avraham had faith in God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. He was even called God's friend. You see that a person is declared righteous because of actions and not because of imunah or faith alone. For us, Teshuvah repentance, the action of turning from sin and turning towards God, and taking on the yoke of our Savior be fulfilling Hattat. Is it once and for all or do we continually do this? We're constantly distracted and the enemy always tries to distract us. Even our own selfish ambitions wage war against us. We tend to make it harder on ourselves, yet as we draw nearer, maybe we will have to repent less frequently. As it is hard to draw near while sinning, but nonetheless, as we are being conformed into his image and his light shines upon us, we are more likely to see the shadows cast by our own sins and our character defects. When these shadows are cast, we mostly notice them when we are not facing the source of our light. It is then that we need to turn around and face the light. My friends, I believe following the Master is not for chumps. For he requires ongoing repentance and ongoing acceptance of his yoke. And it is not always easy, though he provides strength and has given us Messiah Yeshua, he promises that if we draw near to him, then he would draw near to us. <clears throat> the fifth type of offering is the guilt offering or A Asham a sham is akin to indemnity or reparation. A sham is prescribed primarily for offenses that require a payment of restitution, like a penalty. It implies that an offense toward another person is an offense towards God. Also, when settling accounts, we must pay the victim and we repay the victim, and we must repay God. The rep- reparation made to Adonai is the asham or guilt offering. The Torah doesn't say that the sacrifice takes away the sin, but it does say that if a man confesses the sin repents, makes reparations, and seeks atonement before Adonai, he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Yeshua said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, and offered himself up. <clears throat> Looking at First uh, or 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the stake, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Now Yeshua was not a goat, lamb, dove, or a grain. In a hyperbolic sort of way, he is referred to as a lamb of God, but he, he was not a literal lamb. Yet his offering of himself is akin to the Asham offering too. So by repenting and taking on the yoke of Messiah and accepting what he has done for us and then emulating that in our lives, are we able to offer Hashem too? So the sacrificial system though not the actual mechanism for removing sin, provides a beautiful picture of cleansing from sin while foreshadowing the coming Messiah, whose death would serve as a final sacrifice for sin. So we can see here that uh, different types of sacrifices have different meanings. Not all of the korbanot are sin offerings. Most of them are more like gifts than penalties. We see that Yeshua did do, i.e. fulfill all of the sacrifices and as his followers, his disciples, it is our duty to do our best to fulfill them as we are able. Not with the blood of bulls and goats but with our kavanah, our intention, our actions and our prayers. Remember these sacrifices or offerings are about korbanot, drawing near. The humash points out something interesting about Ikra, Leviticus is the third and thus central book of the five books of Moshe. As such, it forms a core of Torah. In this sense, the books of Bereshit, Genesis, Shemot, Exodus, can be considered its prelude, and the books of Bamidbar, Numbers, and Devarim, Deuteronomy, its postlude. The book of Genesis describes why there had to be a Jewish people living in the land of Israel. There was an original vision for creation and an opportunity that was missed. This set in motion a downward spiral of history that made it necessary for Adonai to isolate a faithful core of humanity, Avraham's family, to preserve, bear, and eventually reannounce his message to the world. The book of Exodus describes how this family was made into a kingdom of nobles and a nation set apart and how the mechanisms whereby this nation, could indeed bring the divine presence down to earth, for the Torah, repentance, and the tabernacle were set up. The book of Leviticus excuse me, records the details of exactly how this end is to be achieved. This notion is eloquently expressed by the very first word in the book, from which the whole book takes its Hebrew name, Vayikra, meaning, and he called. The prefixed and immediately connects the beginning of Vayikra with the end of Shemot, Exodus. Moshe could not enter the Mishkan, the tent of meeting, since the cloud had rested on it and Adonai's glory filled the temple. Since Moshe could not enter himself, Adonai called out to him, thereby enabling him to enter and bear the the experience of his glory in order to hear his message. This shows that the events recorded in the book of Shemot, Exodus, were intended to set the stage for what uh, what God, sorry, this shows that the events recorded in Exodus were intended to set the stage for God to call to Moshe and to convey to him the contents of the book of Vayikra. Furthermore, the usual way the Torah opens its descriptions of Adonai talking to Moshe is with the phrase, "God spoke to Moshe, saying." In the opening of the book of Vayikra, however, before the variant of this phrase, God spoke to him from the Tent of Meeting, saying. The Torah informs us that whenever Adonai spoke to Moshe, He first called out to Moshe, implying that His communications with Moshe were not merely for the purpose of laying down His law for humanity, but in order to call out to us, imploring us to respond, asking us to treat the laws of Torah not merely as dry obligations, but as our common meeting ground for Him. Now, reading that in the Humash, I. I Couldn't help but to think about that phrase, our common meeting ground for Him, and who Yeshua is, the Word made flesh. So getting back to the humash, now to emphasize this point, this phrase, opening phrase is not worded God called out, but He called out, referring to God's very essence, not to any aspect of Him that can be defined by any of His names, It is God's essence that calls out to us in the book of Vayikra. The definition of essence is the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something, especially something abstract that determines its character. So we could say it is Adonai's intrinsic nature that calls out to us from the book of Leviticus. That statement in the Humash concerning the Torah as our common meeting ground for him is profound when we consider that Yeshua is the Torah made flesh. And we can draw near to Adonai in and through our Messiah. He is our common meeting ground with Adonai. Thus, although there is very little action, so to speak, in the book of Aikra, it is here that the real action takes place. The inner life of the individual soul and the soul of of the community In their communion with Adonai. It is significant that Vayikra is not only the middle book of the Torah, but the third book, for the number of three expresses the essence of the Torah. The Torah is composed of three parts the five books of Moshe, the prophets, and the writings. It was given in the third month, Sivan. It was given to a nation of three classes priests, Levites, and Israelites. It was given after three days of preparation, and it was taught to the people by three siblings Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. And might I add another three Abba Father, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and Messiah Yeshua. The number three signifies the synergy that results from the paradoxical but harmonious combination of the two elements of a duality, and this is the very essence of the Torah. It takes two opposing entities, the physical and the spiritual, and creates from them a third, the peaceful fusion of the mundane and the holy. And adding my take on the humash here, can we think of a better fusion of the physical and the spiritual than our Messiah, Yeshua, the true essence of God? Amen. Shabbat shalom.